0: Yeah, I mean, this guy's goose is cooked. I mean, it, it's it's not, it's done. It's done for, and uh, he he has no chance of probably holding on to the nomination of his own party, even if he wanted to.
1: Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff.
2: And welcome to Fly Over Country with the aforementioned Scott Jennings. We are uh, remotely broadcasting this evening. Hopefully, the broadcast quality is just as high as you've come to ex- expect on our, uh, our little get-together weekly. So glad. Sean Southerd, welcome back from Europe, Paris, France, other places. How was your trip? Uh, yes, I was,
0: I was in France, participated in a conference on, on the, called the Tocqueville Conversations, and uh, visited Normandy and the D Day beaches, which was a really moving experience, and, and the American uh, cemetery there. So, uh, highly recommend that people go uh, visit France at some point and some of those historical sites.
2: Jared Crawford and Kevin Grout, are both of you also planning now Normandy and European vacations after Sean and Scott's? Seems to be the thing to do.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think we have to. I feel like everybody I know has been in Europe or France like in the last two weeks. And I don't know if that's like a COVID thing um that like pushed a bunch of vacations back but yeah that's to. Know,
1: you know what none of them brought me anything back i think it's
3: a little <laughs> well, you don't know that yet yeah you know, sean may have
2: brought something yeah back. i landed
0: I, just... I landed about an hour ago kevin so um recording you know. this yeah. at
2: 9 p.m eastern time on thursday july 14th uh Ke- sean made it back just in time before best steel day i don't know what the connection is there i do expect him at some point point. and the, the challenge him tonight is to bring up de Tocqueville somewhere in the conversation in one of our conversations this evening. Scott Jennings uh, joining us from New York, where he's going to be having to ditch us uh, in about a half an hour to uh, head back over to CNN. Uh, On the platter tonight, Scott, uh, we have COVID restrictions perhaps coming back. We have some questions of constitutional authority I want to talk about. And that kind of got me going at first when um, the story, when the uh, Cassidy Hutchinson testified about Trump trying to take the wheel and being upset that the Secret Service wouldn't allow him to go to the Capitol on... January sixth, but a few other things that I want to talk about with that. Um, we have the Josh Josh Hawley uh, abortion hearing and being accused of being transphobic by one of the uh, the witnesses there. The economy certainly and also, but Scott, I want to start with you first of all. Uh, it's your podcast; we haven't heard from you yet. Let's talk about this big poll uh, th- th- this past week. Only eighteen percent of Americans say President Biden should run for reelection. And for the first time, more Democrats now say Biden should not run than say that he should. Hi, Scott.
4: Hey, Joe. Thanks for uh, thanks for moving the ball for us tonight. Appreciate everybody uh, hopping on from our remote locations. Yeah, this poll was really a bombshell, and it's certainly been a hot topic on cable news. I've dealt with it on TV some, uh, uh, and probably will again over the next couple of days. Um, you know. No one wants to say it, but I guess I guess I'll say it. And we can talk about it. Joe Biden isn't just in bad political shape. This presidency has collapsed. I mean, look at the numbers. I mean, nobody wants him to run for re reelection. Uh, Democrats are abandoning him. Young Democrats, you know, under 30, completely have collapsed on this president. Uh, you've got 75, 80 percent of the country that thinks we're off on the wrong track. I mean, this is a failed presidency. We're a year and a half in, and it's a collapsed, failed presidency. And uh, you know, Joe Biden's still out there talking about running for re-election, which I guess is spurred on by Donald Trump talking about running for re-election, which I guess causes Biden. But if you look at these numbers, uh, guys, I don't, I just don't know how in the world you would conclude anything other than not only should Biden not run for re-election, but uh, <laughs> you have to, you have to wonder about. What's within the realm of the possible for the rest of this guy's presidency when his own party has abandoned him uh, as much as they have here,
1: Kevin? And it's not just the polling that does this. It's other Democrats, too. As soon as uh, Biden jetted off to Israel for his his next Middle Eastern hat and hand venture, you know who showed up at the White House? Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. He was taking meetings, jacket off, sleeves rolled up. It looked like he already moved in. I think even the party is done with um, w- with Biden and they're not hiding
4: it anymore.
2: Sean yeah, they're treating again, him, but,
4: uh, j- of just God. just to jump on that. I mean, they, Kevin's right. You've got Democrats like Newsom goes over to the White House. You've got Democrats up on Capitol Hill who just sort of treat Joe Biden like he's a lame duck already. Like it's a foregone conclusion that this presidency is over. We haven't even had the guys midterm yet. And so I was thinking about have, have we ever seen in modern history a president's own party treat them like a lame duck, the way Democrats are now treating Joe Biden. I could not think really of an example, certainly in the back half of second terms, you've seen presidencies really go downhill, but it's really early at a presidency for, for, for the guy's own party to be, to be treating him like he doesn't exist anymore.
0: Sean. Yeah. I mean, this guy's goose is cooked. I mean, it, it's, it's not, it's for, And, uh, he, he has no chance of probably holding on to the nomination of his own party, even if he wanted to. Scott, I'd be interested in your perspective, because I was thinking about this earlier, and I think there is an analgum to um, Jimmy Carter, but the comparison specifically of having someone run against an incumbent Democrat president uh, like Ted Kennedy did. Um, and so I, I, I think that I think that there's real questions here about his ability to one, just function and do the job. We continue to see these videos of him shaking hands with invisible people on stage. (laughs) Um, And, and I can tell you from having been in Europe that, you know, they're, they are all, you know, very much a pro Biden attitude, but even they are kind of saying, sheesh, look at this guy. Look, he just seems old and incapable of doing the job.
4: Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting question you raised, Sean, about, you know, would he face a primary? I I think he would, except here's the one thing protecting Joe Biden. The Democrats have no bench. They have no bench for this. I mean, is Kamala Harris going to bail on the president, resign as vice president, run against him? I doubt it. Is Mayor Pete going to resign from the cabinet? I mean, I guess that's more plausible. Is Gavin Newsom going to challenge him in a primary? I, I don't know. I mean, feels like the bench is pretty thin. Uh, for Democrats who would have the guts uh, to run against him and have a chance to get the nomination. And he probably knows that. Uh, At the same time, you raised a couple of issues, Sean, that everybody knows, but nobody really wants to say. Joe Biden doesn't. I mean, yes, he has policy problems, but he's just got a perception problem. But he's not up to this. Last Sunday on the front page, Sean, of The New York Times, while you were out out of the country, they're running a story that says, gee whiz, we just discovered that Joe Biden's old and out of it this is on the front page of the new york times and i'm like did you not know he was old when he ran for president just a year and a half ago and then the very next day uh they ran this story about this poll uh that they had conducted about how uh, bad politically uh, his president the shape politically his presidency was in and two days in a row the new york times just discovering that this guy is out of it and everybody knows it his own party knows it and so i um I, I don't know what he's going to do. I was talking to a, a pretty senior uh, political analyst today and, you know, he thought Biden would gladly step aside if, if he thought Donald Trump was not running again, but that if Trump keeps saying he's running or if he gets into the race, that he wasn't sure if they could hold Joe Biden back. And, and that leads me to one other observation. I'll kick it back to you, Joe. There's a lot of polling out right now. There's some out today, you gov, got a poll out. There's been some previous polling from USA Today and some other operations. About 80% of Americans do not want the Democrats and the Republicans to nominate Joe Biden and Donald Trump again. They, they don't. Uh, only about 20% of Democrats, about uh, maybe 25, 28% of Republicans want Trump. I mean, the American people are demanding, demanding a new set of candidates for 2024. But as we sit here tonight, I'd be interested in everybody's thoughts on, it. as we sit here tonight, and the odds are, I mean, the most likely outcome is that both parties do renominate these guys. I guess, uh, even though it's not a lock that they will, I guess it's it's the most probable outcome, is it not?
2: I think Kevin wants to speak here too, but I'll just say, but Kevin and then Jared, I want to hear from you too. Uh, and and Scott just brought it up. You know, Trump apparently, you know, reports out as we record this has said he's already made up his mind, and it seems to be that he's poised. And it's just only a question of whether he announces before or after the midterm, but Kevin.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, Sean made a great point that this guy's probably going to face a primary and uh, thinking back to our predictions at the end of the year, last year um, I'm, I'm 50% of the way there with my prediction. I, there's already been one cabinet level person resigned in disgrace. All I need is another cabinet level official to resign to run for president. And uh, this week, mayor Pete uh, switched his residency away from Indiana to Michigan a swing state uh, his husband's home state i mean that 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 uh, maybe that's a little too much reading into the tea leaves but that was a uh, very interesting it would be uh, a hot contested primary on both sides um, that then might end up giving us the same uh, a 2020 rematch
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, this week or or last week, Gavin Newsom released that ad talking about how California is like this new freedom state, this really bizarre angle. But I mean, I think clearly trying to shift to some sort of national message going right at Ron DeSantis, who I think people would assume would be the nominee if if not for Trump. And then Trump went at DeSantis because I think he clearly wants to be the nominee still too. So it's going to get messy. I I think it's going to, you know... I, I just I don't see this like having some sort of clean, uh, you know, somebody endorsing somebody else very easily here and kind of getting out of the way. So, you know, Scott mentioned that number of 80 percent of Americans not wanting either Biden or Trump. I, I think it's going to be a messy couple of years for us, too. I, I don't see this being very fun to uh, watch or, or be a part of. Got it.
4: Yeah, I um, um I think that uh, this Newsom thing where he's running against DeSantis you know, anytime you have a vacuum, uh, somebody's going to fill it. And and the Democrats do have a sort of national messaging vacuum. Biden is diminished. He's not really capable of effectively counter messaging against, you know, DeSantis or whoever else. He's tied up with his own problems. So Newsom sees this vacuum and he's, you know, he's not a dummy. He sees that there's a market for somebody to kind of be the national spokesperson against the most you know, active and aggressive Republican right now, which I guess is Ron DeSantis. So he fills the vacuum. And, and my guess is he's experiencing a lot of pats on the back for it because there's one thing we know about our, our modern politics. It's that both parties really do have a cheerleading section uh, for the people who are willing to go right at the person that the, that you hate the most on the other side. So if you're willing to go right at Trump, even if you're a ridiculous person, you know, you raise money, you get plaudits. If you're willing, uh, you know, as a Democrat, uh, to go right at Ron DeSantis, because he's rising right now, you're going to get pats on the back. You're going to get, I'm sure you're going to raise money. And if you're a uh, uh, if you're a Republican who's willing to go at Biden, or if you're willing to go at AOC, if you're willing to go at, you know, some of their stars, you have a chance to rise. Newsom saw that. And it, what's really amazing is that neither Biden nor Harris, the sitting president and vice president, really has the cachet to pull it off right now. It was left to a you know, West Coast governor to do it. I, I don't personally think his message is going to be all that effective. This ad that he released is patently ridiculous. I mean, everybody's fleeing California and moving to states like Florida right now, so it was kind of ridiculous. But it, but you know, a lot of the most partisan Democrats are ridiculous, and they probably lap up that sort of counter narrative. You know,
0: John. Yeah, I think that that Biden and Harris both lack charisma. They lack any sort of actual ability. To speak coherently to deliver a message that makes sense or to to actually direct the country with their speech and i think it comes across like that they are just meandering along every time they open their mouth and they don't know where they're headed with with what they're saying and Newsom and others buddha judge being one of them very very good at taking a message and being a little charismatic with it and not being afraid, not being timid or shy about what they believe in. I mean, you have Buttigieg going on Fox news like once or twice a week to do interviews. I mean, Fox news is no, it's, it's, it's a lion's den for, for Democrats. And, and he goes on there and does a pretty good job of speaking that language. And I think that's because he's from a flyover country state like Indiana. um, And I think that it's going to be interesting to see If Biden does not run, who really takes up the lane? Because I I don't think that it's going to be a a Harris shoe in uh, for sure.
2: And Mayor Pete certainly has the age, uh, uh, basically the the comparison
3: there with President Biden, Jared. Yeah. Sean mentioned the the word charisma, the the Biden administration just feels like it's sort of totally lost its way, even on issues that should be sort of like red meat issues for them. Um, you know, it took them a week to respond to the road decision with that executive order, right? So if you're a Democrat, and you're looking at them, you're like, they can't even get like our red meat issues and sort of like, have that energy around it. And so, you know, the the, a lot of the stories over the last couple weeks around Biden have been like, well, he's old, and he kind of is starting to act like he's old. But I mean, I don't even know that that entire administration has anybody in it or any sort of change agent who is, you know, keeping their finger on the pulse of the party or the voters. And so if it takes you a week to sign an executive order related to abortion, uh, you know, if you're a normal Democrat voter, you're like, what what are they doing? I mean, what are they just, is everybody just sleeping in the Oval Office? Probably. But, um, you know, and so I think it's, you know, normal for voters to want somebody who's just got a better finger on the pulse of the average american i do i do think the road decision if i if i
4: might joe i I, very weird box here because on the one hand there's very very little he can do right i mean the supreme court made a ruling uh this thing is now punted to the state you've got referendum uh situations in some states legislative action in others and more to come and it's going to take you know 12, 18, 24 months for this thing to settle out into some kind of an equilibrium out there about. His base doesn't want to wait for that. And his base also doesn't want him to respect the institution of the Supreme Court. I think this is really one of his biggest problems. His base, after screaming for four years about Donald Trump destroying our institutions and destroying our norms, They're out there demanding that Joe Biden ignore the Supreme Court. They're out there demanding that Joe Biden ignore the Congress and just essentially steamroll our separation of powers all because the Democrat Party is becoming a one-issue party, extremism on abortion. And Biden, I think, you know, somewhere inside of him, there is some shred of institutionalism left and he admitted as much in his press conference when he said, well, the Congress needs to pass a law. You have to vote. And then immediately Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, we can't rely on voting. Voting won't save us. That is the most undemocratic, anti-institutionalist, un-American thing you can say. That's how we solve our problems in this country. But a significant portion of Biden's base, the most progressive left-wing piece of his base, they're, they're not interested in elections. They're interested in an authoritarian making things so. I don't really think that's who Biden is. So he's stuck being the president of a party that wants him to be something he's not and something our constitution doesn't allow. So I don't usually take up for Joe Biden on this podcast, but in this particular case, his own people want him to do something that is just not within the realm of the possible or the realm of the legal.
1: Not just legal, Scott, but uh, fathomable. I mean, When you listen to how this base actually talks, uh, Joe, I think you brought up before, I want to transition to this absolutely bonkers hearing at the Senate Judiciary Committee um, where uh, this uh, Kiara Bridges, a a Berkeley law professor, starts talking about abortion and not just her support for abortion, but she refused to use the word pregnant women. Um, She used the word or the the, the phrase person with the capacity for pregnancy. And, And like this is the leading idea of their base. This is how their base thinks and is trying to force other people to sit to speak. Um, just by saying the word pregnant woman, she accused Senator Josh Hawley of being transphobic because he didn't believe that men could get pregnant. And, and, and Scott, you make a great point that the, they don't want this to be voted on. They don't want this to be in an election because can you imagine putting person with a capacity for pregnancy up in an election? Can you imagine that on a ballot? The voter would go so far away from that, that the Democrats would be completely wiped out. If this is their one issue, they are so out of step with where anybody, not only in flyer, Flyover Country, but the entire world is.
2: It's well, this is
4: a, yeah, this is um, this is another problem that Biden has, in which his political base wants him to speak a language that he he clearly doesn't naturally speak, but they also want him to speak a language that nobody else in America speaks either. <laughs> I mean, the 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 ideas that were espoused by the person you mentioned at that hearing. These are not even remotely close to being mainstream ideas. And, And you look at the structural problems with the Democrats right now. A lot of it is with Hispanic voters, working class Americans, working class people of color. They are bleeding among all these groups that they have depended on for years because the elites in their party and the far left progressive activists in their party are speaking a language that we don't even understand as Americans it sounds crazy and so they've put Biden in this terrible position where he he sort of tries to give lip service to it he tries to act like he's with it nobody believes he understands it nobody believes he's capable of speaking this language and so they put their own president in a bizarre box politically but then they're positioning their party to be out of step with all but the most liberal Americans. And if you look at this New York Times Siena poll, the two parties were at parity on Hispanic voters. I think Democrats won Hispanics by like 48 points in the 2018 election. And now we're at parity on Hispanics between Republicans and Democrats. That's how far left the Democrats have gone and left behind these working class Hispanic voters who just don't understand uh, some of the language that's being spoken that you were just referencing, Kevin. So these far left Democrats have drugged Joe Biden's presidency into a dark place. They've drug their, their party into a dark place. And candidly, if you look ahead at the midterm and then the 2024 election, if they are intent on making this the language of their party, they are dooming themselves to sure defeat because of everything going on right now, you've got a lot of things moving against the Democrats. But when you have a whole political party that is talking about they, they can't even bring themselves to say the word woman they can't bring themselves to say the word mother what kind of a political party what kind of a chance would you have as a political party if you can't even say those things i, I wouldn't think a very good one
3: yeah scott just stole some of my thunder on what i was going to say um i wonder if this that's week... right
4: that's right scott getting <laughs> stealer of thunder that's right
3: <laughs> um, <laughs> or now on theaters go ahead <laughs> I, <laughs> I wonder if this week's breakfast tacos moment might be a wake-up call for the Bidens. Um, you know, Jill Biden referring to, again, the Latin X community, which we know only maybe 2% of uh, Hispanic people use the term Latin X. And then it was also the Latin X inclusion in which the S was also an X too at this like lunch event. So I don't even know where we're dropping X's anymore. What's supposed to be uh, kosher, but- well, All the X's are in Texas, Jared. <laughs> Yeah, with the best breakfast tacos. Um, I wonder if maybe that moment is a wake-up call. Scott mentioned the the polling on Hispanics too, just absolutely dismal uh, for Democrats. They're just, you know, nobody uses the term Latinx. It doesn't work for anybody, but these super fringe parts of, you know, the progressive uh, movement. And so maybe the breakfast tacos moment is the moment that the Biden administration points to and says like, okay, let's start talking like we're normal people again. We're, we're Joe from, you know, Scranton again. Let's stop with this nonsense because that was just such, and, and it, like I've seen it referred to as a gaffe. That was not a gaffe. Somebody in the white house or among, you know, the, the Biden administration wrote that line thinking it was absolutely perfect and, and captured the beauty of the Latinx group. It was an absolutely ridiculous line. It was borderline offensive. And, and so maybe that the breakfast tacos moment, we look back and say that was the the wake up call. But, yeah, again, they are so remarkably disconnected from. from by the, the way, worst. by the way,
4: Jared, on the, I'm glad you brought this up because so much has happened since that happened that I had <laughs> forgotten about it. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because can you imagine can you imagine if a Republican had given that speech and uttered that line? I mean. We would be in full-blown meltdown, defenestration. The democracy is falling. The republic is failing. You know, we would be in a full-blown cable news meltdown. And yet, you know, it got a little bit of play, kind of but 12 hours, you know, worth of criticism. The first lady ended up having to apologize about that. I, I, I didn't think they were criticized enough. I mean, if you go back and listen to the speech, it was the most ridiculous line and then when you realize these were prepared remarks, so it wasn't her off the cuff saying something inartful. It was the White House staff writing a speech and all the people, Kevin knows this, he's a speechwriter, all the people that are required to write and check off on a speech before one of the principals gives it, it's a significant number of people. That, how did that make it through the process and into her speech? I mean, what an embarrassment, what an embarrassment.
2: As far as uh, one thing about Joe Biden, he talked about the box that he's in, sort of like trying to fend off or or satisfy the progressive left with the coalition, which was able to uh, have him succeed and win the presidency in the first place. I think it's fair to say that both parties, both major parties make concessions all the time. And the question is, is, to what extent do you allow the most extreme wings of your party to take control? And then what, what, what's the stomach for the country for that? We saw that that's why perhaps why Joe Biden won in, in the first place. I'm thinking as well about the, you know, when push comes to shove with, with Joe Biden now bending the knee to Mohammed bin Salam now in Saudi Arabia on, on this gas situation, you have the, you know, so obviously the country wants him to, to do whatever he can to get inflation under control, to get gas prices down. Not that this trip is going to satisfy that goal, but but you have to wonder about where does, this, where does this leave him with the progressive left in terms of, or for that matter, all of America, in terms of the fact that we are, in fact, having showing this fealty to Saudi Arabia. Scott?
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the cultural issues we've been discussing uh, heretofore on this podcast are probably more impactful to how his presidency turns out than this Saudi Arabia issue uh, with the progressive left. I think they sort of care about it, but... That there's so much other domestic stuff going on that it, to me its it, I, I doubt it's as important to them as abortion or guns or, or you know redefining the word mother as ca- you know, capable of being pregnant person or whatever it was that they called it. I think those things are far more important to them frankly, uh, than enforcing you know, human rights and basic decency and civility in Saudi Arabia. I mean the most grotesque thing about the trip to Saudi Arabia is just the hypocrisy. He calls them a pariah state. You know, he rattles his saber during the campaign and then sets up a domestic energy policy that, you know, where he's he's uh, suppressing American energy. So then he puts himself in a position because of the war and other issues to have to go beg Saudi Arabia and Venezuela and Iran and whoever else, you know, for more oil. And so, you know, this, this is a disaster of his own making because of the way he positioned himself Uh, During the campaign, but you could say that on a lot of issues. I mean, you raised it a minute ago, Joe. um, You know, one of the reasons he may have won the presidency is because he he was the candidate seen as the most resistant to the fringes. I mean, let's be honest. He won the presidency because he wasn't named Bernie Sanders and he wasn't named Donald Trump. There was a view that he existed somewhere between the navigational beacons, but what we have found out is he doesn't. (laughs) He there's nothing moderate about. Joe Biden. I mean, even if there is something moderate inside of him, uh, that is completely shoved to the to the side by the, you know, the, the blue check Twitter progressives that seem to be managing his message and his policies and his presidency. And so um, and so I, I think if you run your first campaign based on being kind of a moderating influence, you know, somebody who's going to lower the temperature in Washington, we heard that phrase all the time. And then you turn around and do the exact opposite. Po- all policies aside, all abortion aside, all guns aside all uh, Saudi Arabia's aside, the people who voted for you are going to ask themselves, did I get what I voted for? Did I did I get what you promised me? Nobody who voted for Joe Biden looking for a moderate uh, president who was going to lower the temperature and kind of you know put politics on the back burner in America, nobody who wanted that is getting it. Not a single person. Not a single person. So I think, I think if he does run for re-election, that's the single biggest thing he's got to explain. And I don't know how you blame that on Republicans or Vladimir Putin or whatever, what you know, whatever the blame blame game du jour is that day. Because there's one thing about Joe Biden, it's that he has completely forgotten the phrase, the buck stops here. It stops anywhere but here with this guy.
2: Scott, I know you have a TV commitment there as we're taping this on uh, Thursday night at 930. Uh, do you, can you stick around for one more comment or do you have to go? Yeah, we've got we've got time for a couple more All minutes right. here. I want to get to Kevin gr- first. I want to get Kevin's response first and then get your then I want to uh I want Scott and then Jerry to follow up. But there were three stories that I shared with you guys a few minutes ago via email that I want to get your reaction up. The first two have to do with the Secret Service. And I report out today on Thursday that the Secret Service allegedly erased text messages from January 5th and 6th at, shortly after they were requested by, the, by some oversight officials investigating the Capitol riot. And uh, CNN apparently got this letter uh, that was given to the House Select Committee Investigating that, so that's number one. The Secret Service allegedly erasing text Secret Service as well came up, and I, I'm surprised that more wasn't made of this. Maybe there was, and I just missed it. That you know, a lot of people focused on Trump lunging allegedly at the uh, the driver of the limo, and when he wanted to go to the Capitol after he left the ellipse on the January 6th speech. But the whole concept of Trump being told by the Secret Service that he wasn't allowed to go to the Capitol in the first place—that they were making that decision—and not the president—and then finally. Because the other thing that was coming up today, uh, some members of Congress have called on uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley to respond to reports that he cut off the statutory chain of command at the end of President Trump's term. You might recall the story in the Bob Woodward book that that, that he told lawmakers at a congressional hearing as well that he contacted his Chinese counterpart twice to tell him the U.S. had no plans to attack China. So kind of circumventing normal you know uh presidential authority there and kind of say hey no matter what trump does we're not going to do this to you so kevin you first and then scott and then we'll get to jared
1: so so first i want to say um as we're recording this the secret service spokesman has put out a tweet saying that he denies there were massive amounts of deleted text messages um he says he'll be responding in detail shortly that was 2 hours ago so we can have different ideas of what the word shortly means but apparently it's at least two hours. Um, but to your, your, your broader question about institutions um, and, and the power of the presidency and the people who serve uh, in elected office, I, I think what we're gonna find is that there won't be a single Democrat who criticizes any of the things that you mentioned, uh, seriously criticizes it. And because if the Secret Service stopped Donald Trump and General Milley stopped the worst impulses of the president, I think they're going to be cheered as patriots um, and not questioned like you are right now, Joe, about about what the constitutional order looks like. And, you know, we've had we've had a conversation on this podcast a number of weeks in a row about about institutions and who's in charge. And I think I think you're right to point out that that is perhaps a more interesting question um, and who who. is ready to stand up for what, what these institutions ought to be. I don't know the answer to any of your questions. And I also don't think that aside from the five of us here on a Thursday night, many people are talking about this. They're still complaining about gas prices instead. Um, but you know, interesting question, Joe.
4: Got it. Yeah. I, I'm going to leave the uh, secret service text messages for another conversation because it feels like this is evolving. And I mean, I certainly think there could be some illuminating information in there, but I want to hear what they have to say about, about the messages, because I this this has the feeling to me of one of these stories where it looks one way, and then we might find out some things over time, and, and we may we may learn more. So I'm going to leave that one on the Millie issue, which you know obviously came up once before. I was a little bit of an outlier on this uh, when it came up before, in that I, my immediate reaction to the idea of an unelected member of the military circumventing the civilian. The tradition of a civilian run military in the United States, I, that made me very uncomfortable. You know, I recognize Democrats are cheering it because, to your point, Joe, they probably think it's great, you know, that somebody got between Trump and the chain of command or Trump and the law or Trump and, you know, the military. But I don't actually. I mean, this is one of the most sacred pillars of our democracy is that it's sitting at the top of our military as a civilian, an elected person, somebody accountable to the American people. And the idea that you would have unelected people jump in front of our elected representatives, particularly the commander-in-chief, makes me uncomfortable. And I, you know, I think I remember saying at the time, you know, put the shoe on the other foot here. What if sometime between now and the end of this term, somebody in the government somewhere, decides that Joe Biden is no longer mentally competent and they start acting out of you know, maybe they think they're doing the right thing, but they start doing things that circumvent you know our normal democratic process and, and presidential authority. I don't think Democrats would, would like it very much. I do think the impulse candidly to cheer on somebody like Millie or anyone else uh, that would that would try to circumvent uh, presidential authority does reveal something that we've talked about on the show before, and that is there is an authoritarian, Anti-democratic streak in the American left right now. You can see it in their attempts to disregard or intimidate the Supreme Court. You see it in the cheering on of, you know, the circumventing of, of presidential authority. That uh, there's an authoritarian streak in them, and i I think that's I think that's something we're going to be hearing more about in the in the years to come, because I think it's growing, and all the time the left loves to refer to trump as a strong man or as an authoritarian or as a dictator look at your own impulses look at your own impulses these are not democratic impulses you're having when you decide that you want to cut off someone else's speech when you decide this person shouldn't be allowed to speak that's an authoritarian impulse this is coming from the left and so i i think we got to keep a close eye on this because it's it's not in keeping with the character of american democracy in my opinion
3: yeah, I'll just add very quickly again this this you know sort of message that like institutions matter more than you know just the the outcome at the time that you want, right? And so uh, I think the left has always been very short sighted in these sorts of things that they always think that I mean we saw this during COVID they were willing to give over basically their entire lives to an unelected bureaucrat because they liked what he was doing. Um, I knew conservatives, Republicans who liked maybe what. That, you know, Millie in this case or Fauci and whatever, but thought that the process was incorrect, that there's a reason we elect these people and we have a legislative branch. We talked about this last week with the eviction moratorium. I mean, uh, Biden, other, I mean, they are, they're throwing away these institutions, throwing away the rules in favor of just what they like. And that's really dangerous, even if it's good for me or it's good for, you know, the rest of us on the show, or we agree with it. The institution matters more. Than just getting the outcome you like. And so that, that it's really, really dangerous trend.
0: Sean? You know, they are pretty short sighted, Jared. That's why they're trying to get rid of the filibuster right now before they lose the majority in the Congress. Yep. You know, be a shame if something happened to that filibuster right before they give us control of
2: the whole entire
0: legislative branch. Be a real shame if they did that.
2: You know, authoritarian regimes do uh, thrive in during "quote unquote" states of emergency. Jerry just mentioned COVID and the pandemic restrictions, which might in fact be rearing their head again. Uh, we're seeing in Los Angeles right now with them saying to bring back uh, internal mask mandates and and other uh, freedom state controls.
3: the freedom state. Don't forget the that. freedom state.
2: That's that's right. That's right. But it it does bring up in, in you know, sort of my other you know kind of you know philosophical question of of the podcast here, and that is you know. It's one thing for us, again, during an emergency or during a special situation to kind of suspend, uh, you know, uh, sort of our otherwise respecting of institutions and authorities to say, well, this is, is so important now. But it seems now that we've kind of jumped to the fact that this is this is a permanent state of control over such uh, offensive or, or dangerous uh, activities that might offend or endanger a fairly narrow slice of, of, of America. Most people are, are, frankly, I think most people have moved on from COVID, just in my, my view of it. But there is this, this, this wanting to hold on to the vestiges of what that pandemic meant in terms of those controls. And I, you, brought, you brought up the Josh Hawley thing uh, earlier, um, uh, Jared or, Ke- or Kevin, you know, in terms of that as well. I guess it was Kevin. And the fact that now we're, you know, controlling speech. And what you're allowed to say. And, and so, Scott, before you go, I'm just curious about, do, do you see a sort of a, a, a similar theme running here in terms of wanting to hold on to those authorities?
4: Oh, my gosh. I mean, you've got people who want to return to the COVID emergency and because they got used to the power. I mean, anytime you give people, especially unelected people, <laughs> that kind of power, they don't want to give it up. And so now you've got people who want to return to the COVID emergency. You've got people who want to declare an emergency over monkeypox. You've got people who want to declare an emergency, a public health emergency over abortion. You've heard that term used. I mean, heck, you've got Elizabeth Warren wanting to set up abortion tents next to Abraham Lincoln's log cabin and other national lands out of the the idea that we're, we're in an emergency. You've got people who still want to declare an emergency over guns. So the impulse to declare emergency isn't so much rooted in that they think This is an actual emergency. It's rooted in the quest for power and the desire to exercise it with no oversight. I mean, that that is the the point of this governing by emergency. I think uh, the group of us talked about this during covid. Uh, Once once you give people a taste of unfettered power, no oversight and really no ability to check that power. Um, they're going to go back to that well, especially especially when the institutions that govern us aren't giving them the instant gratification that they want, whether it's the Supreme Court or the Congress or the White House. And so I'm not surprised at all that we're seeing a return uh, to this governing by emergency. But again, it goes back to this idea of an authoritarian streak uh, that's running through the American left, where we just disregard the checks and balances, the push and pull. We disregard the institutions that we all you know, say uh, you know that we want to uphold and that we want to strengthen. Governing by emergency is is in complete disregard for that. And so, um, I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm worried about it. And as this presidency continues to collapse and fail and becomes more ineffective, I think you can expect more Democrats as they ramp up their own campaigns for 2024 to basically give their people what they want: promises to do more by executive fiat, to do more by you know extra institutional. Uh, strongman tactics uh, than instead of working within the the boundaries of our normal democratic institutions. All right, I'm going to do some TV. It's been good to be with you guys this week. I appreciate you all uh, hopping on the pod, Joe, if you want to take us home. I'll see you all next week.
2: Thanks, Scott. You take care. Kevin, go ahead. I was going to ask Scott a question. uh, Oh, (laughs) but no, it's okay.
4: Well, go ahead. No, No,
1: uh... no, no,
4: no. No, no, it's live TV, Kevin. You know, what are we going to do? Like, I'll just tell him to, you know, whatever, hit the pause. Well, this is about live TV.
1: I was going to say, Scott, (laughs) you don't want to have Anthony Fauci on TV every single day again. You don't want to go back to those days. I can't believe it.
4: No, no, you, you, but you, you know, you, you brought up another, I was going to, now I'll give my real final point, by the way, (laughs) Fauci, Fauci went dark for a while. He popped up the other day and he did a big uh, photo spread. Was it New York? Times Magazine or Washington Post, I forget. He did a huge photo spread for one of these, like, artsy-fartsy, you know, a gloss- Sunday glossies. And uh, I thought, man, one more artsy-fartsy photo spread before you ride off into the sunset. That, there's never been anybody who fell in love with the sound of their own voice or the view of their own picture more than Anthony Fauci. My God, it'll be good riddance when that guy finally retires before to, uh, November to-
1: get enough money to write or get enough to going on to write that second book, Scott, don't take bread out of that man's mouth.
2: <laughs> all right, guys, I'll see you all. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Thank you. And we, that, that will pretty much wrap it up here. And, and, and any closing thoughts from any of you, I certainly welcome. I, I do hope that, uh, uh, that, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with the Biden trip to Saudi Arabia. We'll see what happens with the uh, Los Angeles, other places responding to the, uh, the pandemic and and such. I, I next time around, we'll, I want to I do want to talk to you about uh, one thing I did not bring up. But I'm going to tease for next week um, is a, a couple other names that I've heard today uh, about potential uh, Democratic rivals for the uh, 2024 uh, nomination. Among them, Gretchen Whitmer and Ralph Warnock. Uh, considering their relative uh, electoral success, <laughs> you don't think so, Sean? <laughs> but I want to ask Scott about that next week. And also, uh, if you missed last week's show, it went like 20 minutes over because Scott read his entire muted list from his uh, Twitter account. So if you feel like you're being robbed this week, then just go back and listen to the last 20 minutes from last week, and it all evens out. Any any other closing thoughts from anyone before we wrap it up? Everyone seems content. Sean actually is hanging on just barely because, Sean, I... I (laughs) You're, you're, you're super jet-lagged here, and apparently you don't fly in the same uh, you know, level of premium seating on international flights as Scott Jennings does. So I think you've probably run, been through the ringer. So welcome home. Happy Bastille Day, and we're, it's good to see you again. You did not, however, bring up to Tocqueville. So take us home with, with one to Tocqueville thought here, Sean, before we wrap up the podcast.
0: Tocqueville was a great philosopher, was happy to visit his, his uh, chateau and his library where he wrote Democracy in America. And uh, the conference was about the Russia and Ukraine uh, uh, war going on, and um, Tocqueville was actually very prescient about uh, the destiny of of the world, and saying that there, at the time in the 1830s when he was writing Democracy in America, there were two great powers that were destined to clash. One was America, the United States of America. The other was the Russians. So there's your there's your Tocqueville for for the evening, Joe. That's something people can can think about as they. Uh, They uh, drift off to sleep tonight, which I'm about to do here very shortly since I've been up since 1 a.m. Eastern time.
2: We certainly hope we haven't put anyone to sleep on this issue, uh, the episode of Fly Over Country with Scott Jennings. That's the voice of Sean Southern. Thanks to Kevin Grout, Jared Crawford. I am Joe Arnold. Have a wonderful week.
4: Fly Over Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Fly Over Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast.